I'd like to start out this morning by saying one word, Nicolaitans. For those who are, were here last week, I got my tang all tangled up and I couldn't say Nicolaitans. I kept saying Nickelodeons. <laughs> Much to the amusement of many. Um, and for a lot of you, that's a, I think it's a TV channel or it might be a show. It just shows you how little I know about TV. Uh, but Clyde came up to me and he said, a Nickelodeon is a machine that played music like a player piano. He said, we used to dance to those when I was younger. And I said, Clyde, no wonder the scripture says, I hate the practice of the Nickelodeons. And he said, well, you got me there. And he walked away. <laughs> we're in Revelation chapter two, and we're going to be looking at the church of Smyrna. And uh, Nathan, you did say Pergamum, right? So that was I think that was good. I, I obviously I mess up myself often. So we're going to look at this uh, what I'm calling a, a suffering for life. And I mean by that the entirety of life, we suffer, and we suffer also for the possession of life. And we're going to see both of those concepts in a moment. Let's read chapter 2, verse 8 through 11. It's the shortest letter in the seven letters. That doesn't mean it'll be the shortest sermon, but it is the shortest letter. To the angel of the church in Smyrna, write... These are the words of him who is the first and the last, who died and came to life again. I know your afflictions and your poverty, yet you are rich. I know the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not be afraid of what you are about to suffer. I tell you, the devil will put some of you in prison to test you, and you will suffer persecutions for ten days. Be faithful even to the point of death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who overcomes will not be hurt at all by the second death. You know, as we saw last week, when they, we, as we ended, uh, we looked at those who overcome will receive the tree of life in, in paradise. And we saw that when a non-Christian in their day and time heard that, they thought of the Temple of Artemis. Because in the Temple of Artemis, right down the road from Ephesus, is a place called the Paradise. and was a garden, and there was a tree of life there. The Christians, on the other hand, would probably think of the Garden of Eden. They would go back to Genesis chapter uh, 3, 2 and 3, and think about the Garden of Eden. My son and I got together for lunch last week, and he gave me the perfect title for last week's lesson. I'll change it if I ever do it again. He said the title should be Life from a Dead Tree. And it was beautiful. I thought that was great. Because what Jesus is saying here, he's saying that life is in the cross. Uh, I shared with you how any normal tree was called a dendron. The tr uh, fig tree is a dendron tree. Uh, and yet our um, apple tree will be a dendron. And so you would expect here tree of life being the dendron, but it's not that word at all. It's zulon, which refers to dead wood. 
uh, a club. The stocks that Paul and Silas were in were zulons. They were that's what they were in with the dead wood that was holding them in stocks. Um, over in Galatians, it talks about uh, the cross being uh, curses everyone who's hung on a tree or a zulon. And here, when we come to Revelation, it says the tree of life is the zulon of life. Our source of life is the cross. That's a spiritual reality. John chapter three, verses 14 and 15. And there's so many places we could go to. But it says just as Moses lifted up the snake in the desert, so the son of man must be lifted up so that everyone who believes in him will have eternal life. When he's lifted up on that cross, that's the source of true life. To understand Revelation, we have to listen to echoes, what I'm calling echoes, echoes from the scriptures. And the more I read about these, I, I just keep hearing more and more from uh, from Genesis all the way through uh, through Jude. I hear echoes from the scriptures, but we also need to listen to echoes from the time, the current events of their day. And it'll make more sense. And that's why I'm sharing with you some of the background, because you're, I want you to hear through the ears of the people from Smyrna and from the people of Ephesus and so on. Robert Wade came up to me afterwards and he said it'd be something like this. If we had a saying, uh, if NASA had a saying, Na- Na- uh, NASA, your pathway to the heavens. And I know that's not it. Uh, I know what it is, but I forgot what NASA's. Some of you, you, some of you work there. What is the <laughs> saying of? They, they have a uh, they have a saying, a theme or a, what? No, it's, well, I, you know better than me. So, <laughs> anyway, OK, but if we had this, if, if, if all right, if NASA had this, uh, the pathway to the stars and in order to work there, as you enter the building each day, you had to take a piece of uh, incense and sprinkle it on a fire or you couldn't work there and honor NASA and just say, you know, NASA is great or NASA is my Lord or whatever. I know you feel that some way when you're working there. But it, but if you had to do that in order to work there and then we get a letter from Jesus and he says, I am the pathway to heaven. You would just automatically know every day you hear this. NASA is the pathway to heaven. NASA is the pathway way to heaven. And Jesus says, no, that's not true. I am the pathway to heaven. So we see these things. Over and over, as Revelation uses current thoughts of their day and time, and he's trying to encourage these people and say, look, listen, uh, Domitian says he holds the seven stars in his hands. It's not true. I hold them. And that coin I showed you had uh, Domitian's son holding the seven stars in his in his hand. Um, I made a trip, as I uh, shared with you uh, back in April, and I was encouraged last week with several saying they, that it helped them really understand this place, uh, that it was a true, um, uh, the reality of the place and the time with these videos. So I have a, a few short clips. And this first one is as I'm entering into Smyrna, uh, my, this is my very first day uh, in uh, Turkey. Uh, I walked down some uh, little back roads to get to uh, to this area. Uh, all my videos are spur of the moment. I make mistakes sometimes, so don't be too critical of them. And I'm going to mention Pegasus here. And what that refers to is the airline I took from Budapest to Izmir 
was the Pegasus Airways. All right. And so I'm going to mention, mention Pegasus in this uh, clip here. The old horse Pegasus was slow getting off the ground yesterday, but I finally made it to Izmir. almost missed the plane in uh, Istanbul. You can hear the prayers at a mosque behind me, and I've walked to the Smyrna Agora, and I'm about to enter it and see what all is there. In the middle of Izmir, a very busy city of, I'm sure, several million, the ruins of Smyrna exist. I've just come into the entrance, and I'm going to begin to look around and see what we have in ancient Smyrna. So that gives you an idea of the site uh, that I went to. Uh, Smyrna was a proud city. By the way, Izmir has four and a half million people in it. It's a, it's a large city. It was a proud city, and I want to talk a little bit about this background so we can hear the echoes. So we're, we're going to hear this echo all throughout, uh, throughout this, uh, this study. They, com- they competed with Ephesus, which is 50 miles to the south, and Pergamum, which is 60 miles to the north, for prestige and for honor and for wealth. Smyrna has a beautiful natural harbor today. It's always been there. It's a big, huge harbor. Largest boats can go in there. There's a main road that leads east to Sardis, goes out to Sardis and keeps on going further to the east. It's the commerce of uh, the Valley of Hermes is there. Uh, all the wealth that comes through the comes through the city. Under Tiberius, Eleven cities competed for this for the honor of uh, Neocorus, which means a temple guardian. They would build a temple to the emperor and honor the emperor through emperor worship. Eleven cities competed for it, and Smyrna won that competition. Uh, Pergamum was the first city to have that in 29 B.C. Augustus allowed a temple built in his honor there. During the time that Revelation was written, Domitian had had his temple built in Ephesus, and I sat among the ruins of that, that temple. He was called the Crown of Asia. It was supposed to be a beautiful city. Uh, even though it's a, a, a very, very busy city today, it's still a, a beautiful city in many ways. But it was called the Jewel or the Crown of Asia. Writers would talk about how a wind, westerly wind, would come through and cool the city. And it was uh, a, a place that people wanted to live. There was a road called the Golden Road. As you came into the harbor, you'd see Mount uh, Pegasus there. And as you came around the, the fringe of the mountain was a, a road called the Golden Road. I don't know if it had gold on it or just that's what they called it. Uh, and then up on the mountain were temples and buildings and it looked like a crown. And so as you came into the harbor, you look at the city. And that's why one reason it was called the, the crown of Asia. Coins from Smyrna said things like, I believe on my next slide here, first in beauty and size. Let's see here. They're crown of Asia. First in beauty and size. Um, they claimed that uh, the poet Homer was born there and that he was from uh, from that area. And that's a, a, a coin in honor of, um, of Homer. 
It was a very old city. Uh, it was uh, what I call a new life city. As far back as AD, uh, BC, 1000 uh, BC, it was an established city. There were settlements before that time, but it was a Greek colony. And it went on for about 400 years in, in uh, wealth and prestige. And then the Lydians came in from the east and they attacked the city and just leveled it, destroyed the city. It was only a collection of small villages until uh, Alexander the Great came by. He was actually a little bit further south, but he went hunting up in the mountains of Pegasus around that area. And this poem uh, depicts what happened. He, he uh, fell asleep on that mountain, had a dream. The dream said you were to rebuild this city and whoever lives here will be three and four times happier than any other place. And so he ordered his general to uh, start rebuilding the city. And it was laid out in a very orderly way, just like a military person would do it. It's very orderly city, very beautiful city. And the people were proud that we are a city that once was dead. And now we came back to life. When I entered the city, I was absolutely alone. I walked in. It was like there was no one there. And that was neat. As I walked around, one or two people started coming in. And the area that you saw was, it's just, uh, it's called the Agora. That's the shopping area. That's the shopping mall of their day and time. And you could see all the, a lot of the marble is just laid out there. They haven't, they haven't restacked it or, at all. But there's an area that you go down into the underground area. And as I went down there, I heard some beautiful singing. And I wanted to share this with you. This is my very first day there. I'd traveled all day the, the, uh, the, follow, the day before. Um, I'd gone into the city I'd never been to before. Got out of the train. I didn't know really where I was going. Walked a few blocks to my hotel, the only hotel that I reserved the whole trip. And I uh, went, went there. It was late at night. And the next day I made my way to Smyrna. And I walk underground. I'm still a little bit jet lagged from everything. And I hear this beautiful singing. And if anyone recognizes this song, maybe later you can... Uh, you can um, uh, share the name of the song. I don't, I don't know what it is. But I want you to hear the singing that I experienced in, uh, during, uh, as I was thinking about these suffering Christians that lived in Smyrna.
So I just met these uh, Christians from Cambridge. And so I want to say... Say your names first, real quick. Okay, I'm Alice. I'm Jamie. I'm James. Rima. Nathan. Maria. All right. Hello, Central Family. So there's a sweet, sweet group of people who were singing and the the uh, the words to the to the song "I will trust in you, I, I will not fear the evil one" was very appropriate to this uh, to this um, letter to the church in Smyrna. As we go through here after the church in Smyrna, he says, "These are the words of him who is the first and the last." It talks about Jesus. And as I've said before, it's going to connect back to chapter one each time when he refers to himself. He says, um, uh, I am the first and the last. And remember, we're speaking of a city that competed for prominence. Jesus said, I am the first and the last. So he's taken the language of the culture and he's taken the myths of the culture and he's revealing truth here. He says, you're a city that seeks preeminence. You want what is first. You want to be first. Seek me because I'm the preeminent one. Colossians one verse 18 says he is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead so that in everything he might have the supremacy. He is the first from the dead and uh, he is the one who is supreme. He is the one who has preeminence. But more so, we saw how this connects to the Old Testament, that he, it's a claim to be God. The God of the Old Testament, verses 8 and verses 17 of, of chapter 1, he says almost the same words here. But he says, I am the God of the Old Testament. And Exodus says, I am who I am. And he uses this uh, very same language, the first and the last, the, the beginning and the end. But he also said, I'm the one who died and came to life again. You're a city that's proud to be reborn. Your, your, nation, your city was destroyed and it was rebuilt again. Is rebuilt by Alexander the Great of great beauty, and you're proud of that. But I'm the one who truly died. I'm the one who's come to life again, Jesus says. Seek me if you want true rebirth. If you want true life, seek me. First Peter chapter 1, verse 3. Right there. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope. Through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. That's where our new life comes from. And then after he restates who is speaking, he then says, I know some things. I know some things. I walked down in that area before I met the young Christians. And uh, I had some initial thoughts that that go along with uh, what I'm saying here. And we'll play that video now. Christian brothers and sisters walked down this agora 2,000 years ago. They were troubled people. They were experiencing trouble. They were poor. They had suffered insults. Some were going to be put into prison. And some were going to die. So... I wonder what they thought as they walked right here. I wonder what they heard, the insults they heard as they walked down this path. The book of Revelation says, not only says they were poor, 
But it says more than that. He says, I know your troubles. I know that you are poor, but really you are rich. He says, I know the insults you suffer from people who say they're Jews, but they're not true Jews. And the interesting thing about this is Jesus brings reality into a world where we're told we're poor. He says, no, you're not. You're rich. He says things like, I know you've been suffering insults from Jews, but those, those aren't really Jews. He introduces into their lives the reality that they have in Christ. I believe the book of Colossians says that. The reality, the reality which is in Christ and is Christ. So there's several things that he says, I know. He says, I know your afflictions. And as I said on the video, this difference between physical reality and spiritual reality. What's true? Because our senses, our physical senses tell us one thing, and yet God tells us something different. He says, no, that's not true. You're poor, but you're not poor, but you're rich. Our eyes do not always tell the truth. And the question is, where is the proof of that, especially when I'm having problems, especially when I'm suffering? I'm suffering, and yet you say, you know, you, you know I'm suffering, but where's the joy in that? The word affliction means a crushing weight. It's the same word that's used with a mortar and pestle or a, a millstone that crushes wheat or crushes something. This is the same kind of crushing that is talking here. He says, I know that this persecution is like a heavy crushing weight on you. And then he says, and I know that you're poor. And this word means totally destitute. It's not poor and scraping by. It's not like a lot of us may say, well, I'm poor. I I just don't have quite enough money to pay the bills. But this is not that kind of poor. It's not that kind of poverty. It's utter poverty. This was a physical reality for the Christians of their day. Not only not because of their own doing, wasn't because of their bad management of money, but it was because of persecution. They were prevented from buying and selling in the marketplace. Things were taken from them. People came and literally stole from them. And there was nothing they could do because they couldn't go to law on this. They were being persecuted in this way. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 34. Do I have that on our screen? I can't remember if I put it up. Is it on our next one? Nope. Yes. No, it's not. I should have put that on the screen. Uh, Hebrews 10, 34. I'll read it to you. He says there, you sympathize, you sympathized with those in prison and joyfully accepted the confiscation of your property because you knew that you yourselves had better and lasting possessions. This was common in their day and time. Then he says uh, on there, I, but I know you're rich. Here's the spiritual reality. I know that you are. Uh, we, we have to learn how to see with spiritual eyes and hear with spiritual ears. And that's where the true joy is. In this city, there was a spice called myrrh. In fact, the word Smyrna means myrrh, comes from the word myrrh. All the myrrh business had to pass through the city of Smyrna. Uh, It was a fragrant spice. It was valued. This was the, the spice that the wise men brought to Jesus as a baby. And I thought about that as I thought about this. I, I thought, do, was, is it possible that the myrrh that was presented to Jesus came through the city of Smyrna? 
on the way to the east before it was given to to Jesus. And then when he was buried, Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea uh, wrapped his body in these spices. And one of those spices was myrrh. And again, I thought, did those spices go through the auction house in the custom house of Smyrna before it went to anoint Jesus? Under the crush of persecution, he says, there's a rich fragrance. There's a rich smell that comes from you. You know, the only way this spice could be useful is if you crushed it. And they said, the more you crushed it, the greater the fragrance. Second Corinthians chapter two says, and through us spreads everywhere the fragrance of the knowledge of him. For we are the aroma of Christ among those who are being saved and those who are perishing. To the one, we are the smell of death. To the other, the fragrance of life. And I think this last uh, line is so appropriate. And who is equal to such a task? When you're under that persecution, when you're under that pressure, who is equal to such a task? Paul wrote about the unsearchable riches of Christ, he says, in chapter 3 of Ephesians. And he spends a whole time saying this fragrance that we have, this unsearchable riches that we have is in Christ and, and through Christ. And he spends the entire uh, first half of the book explaining that. And it's hard for us to believe that in a physically centered world. What do we consider riches? Comfort. When I'm comfortable, I feel rich. When I'm satisfied, when I have money in my bank account, when I have conveniences, when I could go and to the store and not worry about the bills. I just paid the pay the grocery bill. And there's nothing really wrong with the convenience and the comfort that we we have in this life until it becomes the focus and the center of our lives. And that's what's so dangerous. And that's what's so easy. It's so easy for us to get focused on the physical reality and the physical comfort and the physical things are going my way. And that's our, our focus that we lose our spiritual focus. The center is in Christ. The center is spiritual reality. The question I ask myself is grace, mercy, salvation, peace, joy, love. Are those things of greater value than the physical? Jesus says, yes, if you have those, you are rich. How? Why? What's the reason for that? Because the physical is temporary. That's this, what this physical life is short. It's not going to last long. Second Corinthians chapter four, verses 16 to 18 says this. Therefore, we do not lose heart in the midst of persecution, though outwardly we are wasting away. Isn't that true? Inwardly, we are being renewed day by day. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but what is unseen. For what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. And that's why Jesus says, fix your eyes on the, what, the true riches. Fix your eyes on the eternal. All these things that we have are just things that are temporary. And then he says, I know the one slandering you. I know the source of persecution. This is a picture of a synagogue in Sardis, which will go and be there in a few weeks. 
there were synagogues throughout all uh, of the Roman Empire as the, as the Jews went out from Jerusalem and they would uh, establish uh, uh, synagogues in each each city. And you see this all through the book of Acts. The first Christians were Jews, Peter and John and Paul and so on. And as they went out, the very first place they went to was the synagogue. They sought out the synagogue because fellow Jews were there, fellow believers in God were there. And they went there and taught them about the Messiah, the Christ. And many, many times they were they were rejected. And then after they were rejected, they were persecuted. Sometimes they were cast out of the synagogue, sometimes as a physical persecution. But the well-established Jewish communities had great influence on the Roman authorities. And one reason is because a lot of Gentiles would go there. They wouldn't become Jews. They didn't want to go through all the, 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 the process of becoming a Jew. But they were called God-fearers. They were people who, they, they loved the morality that, uh, that the Jewish uh, teachings, the Jewish God uh, uh, taught them. They, they loved the, the ethics and so they attached themselves to the synagogues. And many of these people were from very wealthy families. Cornelius was a God-fearer. And so Cornelius was a Roman centurion. He had a lot of authority. And so these people coming to, uh, to the synagogues uh, were connected to these Jews. And they wanted to stay on the good side of, of these people. And thus they had a lot of uh, influence over them also. They may have been especially working hard to stay on the good side of the Romans. And here's the reason. At that time, Domitian was the emperor. His brother was the previous emperor, and he was the general who destroyed the temple of Jerusalem about 15 years earlier. In 70 AD, prior to that, their father, Vespasian, he, was, he came in, he, he attacked the city, uh, the emperor died, and so he goes back home and he becomes the emperor. Sends his son Titus to Jerusalem and they level the city. It's one of the worst things that ever happened in history. The temple is torn down. The people suffer greatly. Uh, if you read uh, Matthew, Mark and Luke, they, they warn Christians get out of the city when this happens. And, and they, the Christians did leave the city. But Titus was Domitian's brother. Uh, in around 79, Ves, uh, Vesuvius... The uh, volcano, this is in Pompeii, that's the mountain of Vesuvius in the, in the background. It blew and destroyed uh, Pompeii and some other uh, cities. There was a prophet, a Roman prophet, a Sibyl, they called him. And he said the reason this happened, this, this terrible disaster happened, was because of the Flavians, Domitian's family. Titus was the emperor at the time. He said, because you destroyed the Jewish temple, the Jewish God is now angry and he's going to destroy the Flavian dynasty. He went on to say that some of his followers are here, Christians or Christus, he called them at that time. They are among us. And so when Domitian became emperor just two years later, in a sense, he declared war on the Christians. And the Jews encouraged it because they didn't want to be a part of that war that uh, Domitian was uh, 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 had against the, um, the the Christians. And so Jesus calls them Jews that are not really Jews. They're physical descendants of Abraham. John the Baptist uh, uh, referred to this in Matthew when people came to him and he said to the Jews, he said, listen, just because you say you're Abraham's children doesn't make you Abraham's children. 
In fact, God could take these rocks right here and raise up children from from these rocks. Jesus in in John chapter eight, verse thirty nine and forty four says this. Abraham is our father. They answered the Jews answered. If you were Abraham's children, Jesus said, then you would do the same things Abraham did. You belong to your father, the devil, and you want to carry out your father's desire. He was a murderer from the beginning, not holding to the truth, for there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks his native language, for he's a liar and the father of lies. And so what Jesus is saying here in Revelation is just because you say you're a Jew, just because you claim a relationship with God doesn't mean you have it. The ones who are truly Jews are those who do his will. So what's our response to this suffering? You're poor. You've been hurt. Bad things are happening. Our response to persecution is much like my grandson's. Five years old. There's two five years old. Some of you may have heard the story. I know some of you did. Last week or last week, someone broke into their house and stole. The only thing they stole were the kids. Um, little banks and the money they've been saving for uh, for chore from chores and things. So Tui was upset. All the kids were. And so he writes a letter to the robber. Let me translate this for you. Dear robber, I hate your stinking guts. <laughs> you and he was going to say you make me something, but he decided to change that. You are scum. I don't know if those were kisses or, or punches. <laughs> but the picture beside us of a monster that's supposed to scare the robber away next time. But, you know, he's five years old. But that's how we feel, don't we? When we're persecuted, we hate it. And we'll say that. Why am I going through this? We act like a five-year-old. Uh, of course, mom and dad are taking advantage of this opportunity to teach him to love our enemies and things like this. And that's part of being a parent and raising our children. But that's how we feel many times. And so Jesus, knowing how we feel, he gives us the results. He says, well, listen, number one, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. Earlier in chapter one, verse 17, he said, don't be afraid of me. John fell down at his feet and he said, don't be afraid. And he's saying, don't be afraid of me. Don't live in afraidness. But you live in the fear of the Lord, which means a relationship with God. We spoke about that. And now we're saying, don't be afraid of suffering. And yet that's what we have a great fear of, don't we? Are you like me? Do you have a fear of suffering? I fear suffering. And we think we know the ability, the limit of our ability in our sufferings. We know, well, maybe if I, I, I could suffer this much and it'd be okay, but I, I just don't, oh God, spare me from that much suffering. We all do this. We all struggle with this. And yet, as I've sat down with people over the years and really been with them during their suffering, I'm so amazed at how they go through sufferings, how Christians go through it. And I ask, how can they do this? How can they endure what they're going through? And I've seen some terrible things. And this is what I hear over and over from these suffering Christians. God is good. God helps me. Through this, God's grace is in my life. And I'm amazed as I see people physically and emotionally in, in the depths of pain say, God is good. 
God doesn't promise the absence of suffering, but he does promise the grace and the strength to endure it. What happens when we suffer? And we all suffer to certain degrees, and we all in our future may suffer even greater. We grow. Our fragrance comes out through the pressure and our affliction. Our character is strengthened. Like this myrrh that is crushed and good comes from it, so good comes from our suffering. And Jesus says, I know. I I went through this. Jesus went through suffering not only at the end of his life and at the cross, but that's where you really see it. He's in Gethsemane. And we know the story. If you haven't read the story, read it. You read about him suffering in the garden so much that his sweat came like drops of blood. And the word Gethsemane means olive press. He's right there in the place of pressure. And he's under pressure. And he speaks. He says, I know what you're going through. I'm not saying this intellectually. I don't know it from reading a book. But I know it because I went through it. So I know what you're going through, and I know you can go through it. Now, of course, we shouldn't seek suffering, but when it comes our way, we walk through it with God's right, in God's right hand. And then he says, some of you will be placed into prison. And I notice he says, the devil will put you into prison. And I want to say here, don't give credit to God for things that Satan does. A lot of times we'll do that. We'll give credit to God for things that Satan does. And yet Jesus said here, the devil will put you into prison. Sometimes when children suffer or people suffer or injured or some kind of tragedy, they die. People say, well, it was God's will. Well, maybe in the sense that God controls history and maybe in the sense that God's going to work all things out for the good. We know that. He allows Satan this time. Okay, we know that. That may be true in that sense. But I think he's saying clearly here, it is not God putting people into prison to suffer, to to test, but it's Satan's work that's doing that. Satan is active, and we need to be aware that he has free will also, and he's active. Over in uh, 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8 and 9, it says this, Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Resist him. Standing firm in the faith, and I love this, because you know that your brothers throughout the world are undergoing the same kinds of sufferings. Satan is active. He's going, he is trying to make you suffer. And the reason he's trying to make you suffer is to pull you away from God. And God says, no, if you endure your suffering and you go through it, you will come out glorious. You will come out a better person. You will come out stronger in your faith. And when you go to jail, it's not like prison today. I know prisons today are not aren't nice places, but in their day and time, often it was a death sentence. Terrible hygiene. Food was scarce. Water. They didn't care about you. You were in stocks in a terrible place. And it often was a, a death sentence. But he says here, you're going to suffer for 10 days. And this just means a limited amount of time. There's a limited amount of time. God says, you know, this is not going to go on forever. And I find that great encouragement. You know, Julie and I were talking about this as we came uh, to church today. You know, sometimes when you're going through struggles in your marriage, just know it's not going to last forever. I'd say something bad, but I'm not going to. <laughs> it won't last forever. And sometimes we just think it's the end of the world or raising teenagers. And we think it's just a terrible thing. It's, oh, this, this is awful. It's not going to last forever. 
And so God sits here and says, you're suffering. The pain that you're going through is for 10 days. It's a short time. It's not 10 literal days, but it's a short time. And if you just realize that the end is coming, you can get through this. The focus is this. Be faithful, even to the point of death. Smyrna was called a faithful and loyal city. Before Rome became the world's powerhouse, the most powerful nation, Smyrna attached itself to Rome. And even when things went bad for Rome, they were faithful. They always stuck with Rome. One point, the Roman soldiers were is in the middle of winter. They were dying of, uh, of cold and uh, hunger. And the story is that they, the, the people of Smyrna literally took the coats off their backs, the coats off their backs, and sent it along with food to support the Roman army. And the Romans never forgot that their allegiance. They were faithful to Rome. They were faithful people. And so Jesus uses that and says, be faithful like you are. You're a faithful city, but be faithful to me. Be willing to go through whatever hardships you have and you'll receive, he says, the crown of life. There are two types of crown, the diadem, the kingly crown and the Stephanos, the victor's crown. The one on top is a golden victor's crown in the Ephesus Museum. The other one is a statue with the with the um, uh, Stephanos on his head. And he says, this is you. You are going to receive the victor's crown, the Stephanos, not the diadem, not the kingly crown. These these uh, crowns were worn when you won a race. Smyrna had great, a great stadium. They had Asian games every few years. A huge stadium was there. Uh, and when it, someone won a race, the Stephanos was given to them. A magistrate who completed his term faithfully was given a Stephanos for faithful service. At banquets, that you went into the into a banquet, you were given a Stephanos to re- wear as you ate at the banquets. It's a joyful thing to have. As the people from Smyrna went up to their temples in honor of the gods, they wore these victor's crown. And here he said, here's the true Stephanos. True joy in Christ, true honor of faithfulness, true victory, a Stephanos placed on the head, on your head, by the one who is wearing the diadem. Stephanos, this is the Stephanos of life. This means it consists of life. There's also called, called the crown of righteousness in Second Timothy. It's called the crown of glory in First Peter. He says, Domitian is depriving you of life, but I'm going to give you the crown of life. Listen, he says, he who has ears, let him hear to what the spirit says to the churches, not just to Smyrna, but to churches, to the churches central, I say. When this letter was first read. As I went through these cities, I followed this almost at every city. What was it like for the people who first heard this letter? And when this letter was first read in Smyrna, it's very likely that a young man in his late teens, maybe early 20s, named Polycarp, was listening to it. Seventy years later, persecution came up again. Polycarp was an old man now. He was called a bishop or an elder or overseer of that city. And it was, time, it was a time during the public games, the Asian games. A lot of people from out of town were there. And someone stirred up the crowd. People were, had a lot of energy, a lot of excitement. 
And someone started something close to a riot that demanded that Polycarp be brought out and killed by wild animals. His reputation was such that he had opposed the emperor worship and other things, that he was a Christian, and they demanded that he be killed. When other Christians heard that, they took him outside the city and they hid him, but the Romans ended up finding where he was. They came to the house and they went to arrest him. And he said, listen, I'll go, I'll go with you. Would you give me an hour to pray? And while, the, while you're giving me this hour to pray, my fellow Christians here is going to serve you a meal. And they, they gave him that hour. And so he went into a back room and he prayed and other Christians fed the, uh, the soldiers that came to, to take him away. As they're going back into the city, the captain who was in charge of his arrest said this. What harm is it to say Caesar is Lord? Just do it and be saved. He was touched by Polycarp. He was touched by the, the character that he was. And he just said, it's a little thing. Just take a little spice, that little incense there, throw it on there, say, Caesar is Lord. You don't have to mean it. Just do it and be saved. He comes in front of the pro-council who was in charge of issuing his execution. The man didn't want to, to execute him either, so he threatened him. He said, don't you know what I can do? I can throw you to the lions. I can put you on a, uh, at the stake. You can be burned to death. His famous reply was, 80 and six years have I served him. How can I blaspheme my king who saved me? He was put on the stake. They were going to nail him to it. He says, you don't have to nail me to the stake. I'll stand here. They put him at the stake. And as he burnt to death, he prayed a prayer that was written down, a praise to God for who God is and an opportunity to die for him. He says, to him who overcomes, you will not be hurt at all by the second death. How do you become an overcomer? In Ephesus, it says you do it by loving correctly. He who overcomes, I will give him the right to eat from the tree of life. And the way they did it is they needed to learn how to love God and especially love others. He says you need to love so that all men will know that you're my disciples. You've lost that first love. That's how you overcome. Learn how to love one another. But the people of Smyrna... They overcame by learning how to suffer correctly. Be faithful. Don't quit. Don't give up. Don't be afraid of what's in the future there. Don't be afraid of the suffering you're, you're going to, that's going to happen. Because here's the result. You won't experience the second death. We all experience the first death. We're experiencing it as we grow older. And one day we'll, we'll physically experience the death, that first death. But he says, be faithful through that death. And the second death, the separation from God, the separation from all that is good, will never happen to you. You'll be an overcomer. And you'll receive the crown, the victor's crown of life. If you're not a Christian, or if you're a Christian who's been unfaithful, take this letter, have ears, listen to what he says. Repent, change your mind, come to him in obedience, have your sins washed away, so that you can have that same promise, the crown of life. 
If you're not a Christian, we invite you to come and be that. If you're a Christian and need to make some changes in your life, we encourage you to do that. If you need to speak to our elders, please come forward as we stand.